0: God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his internal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, Did not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Good.
1: Done. All right. Oh, that's better. My name's Carl. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, uh, we're going to be looking at that passage together. But before we do that, let's uh, spend some time in prayer. Uh, Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, that you are a good and a loving God, a God who made us and a God who wants us to know you. And uh, Lord, uh, we ask uh, this morning that you would help us to know who you are and uh, that you would help us to uh, receive the love that you offer us in Jesus um, and Lord, to receive the knowledge that comes um, about you through him and through your word. So Father, we pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen. As Jacob said at the moment, we're working through uh, uh, this question, what do you live for? So uh, someone might have asked you that question, you might be thinking about that question yourself, what is it that I live for? You might know what the answer to that question is uh, or you might uh, still be thinking through what the answer to that question is. Uh, But every year we ask people what they think about certain topics Uh, And uh, this year, that's our question. Uh, And then we look at the top responses. And this was one of the top responses, that people live for virtue. Uh, And I think every year that we do uh, one of these surveys, there's always something that, there's always one answer that surprises me. Uh, you know, I, I thought that happiness would come out as a, as a, as a key goal for people, that family is, a, is an important goal, but I was a bit surprised that virtue was such an important goal for so many people. But it makes sense, I guess, doesn't it? When you look around at the world, there are, uh, there are people who are uh, involved in uh, protests, uh, people who are uh, activists. Uh, for the environment. There's lots of people who are engaged politically and socially in working for the good of others. Uh, In some of the uh, responses that we had to the survey question, there were lots of things that people said that they live for under this category. They said that they live to be authentic, to help and heal people. They live for harmony, for serving others. Uh, They live to be the source of love and fun for others Uh, and they live for self-love and for self-acceptance. And maybe uh, virtue is uh, the thing that you're living for. Maybe you resonate with one of those responses uh, that we received. And if that's so, then you're in good company. Uh, In 2013, the Australian sociologist and author Hugh Mackay published a book called The Good Life. And the, the question of his book was, what is a good life? What does a good life consist of? And he the conclusion of his book was this. He wrote The good life is not the sum of our security, wealth, status, postcode, career success, and levels of happiness. The good life is one defined by our capacity for selflessness, the quality of our relationships, and our willingness to connect with others in a useful way. That's not a new idea. Uh, Aristotle had written about that thousands of years before. He said that he promoted a life of living in accordance with reason, fulfilling one's sense of purpose, doing one's civic duty, living virtuously, being engaged to the world, and in particular, experiencing the richness of human love and friendship. I don't know about you, but I reckon that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? A life of love and friendship. Uh, A life of virtue. A life of doing good to others but the idea of living uh, for virtue raises a complex problem and that is what is virtue and how do we decide that and who gets to decide that uh, maybe there are things that we think are virtuous that actually aren't virtuous or maybe there are things that we think aren't virtuous and they really are uh, maybe uh, There are things that we just don't know that we shouldn't be doing. And how would we find that out? How would we know if that's the case or not? Think about happiness, for instance. Uh, It sounds like a noble idea. It sounds like a great idea, doesn't it, to live for the happiness of others. Uh, It it sounds like it's a good thing to do. But what does that actually look like in practice? You see, what if me aiming to make you happy actually hurts somebody else? What do I do then? Which which is better? And what about crime and injustice? What what if dealing with perpetrators makes the victims happy, but it doesn't make the criminals happy, does it? So how do I evaluate those things? How do I work out what's virtuous and what isn't? Or take another example... uh, Most people in our society would rate tolerance as one of the highest virtues uh, that we can have. Uh, But what do we mean by that? What do we mean by tolerance? Sometimes sometimes in practice, tolerance becomes being tolerant of everything except intolerance. Uh, So people become exceedingly intolerant of others who are intolerant. And they throw the mud at each other, accusing each other of being intolerant and become horribly intolerant themselves. It's kind of a race to, to you know, who can claim the, the, the mantle of the most tolerant of intolerance. But surely it's more complicated than that. Surely there are things that ought not to be tolerated. Surely there are things that we shouldn't put up with. Surely we shouldn't put up with murder, we can agree on that. But what about murderous threats and violence there's a debate raging in australia at the moment about free speech what people should and shouldn't be able to say what about violent language on facebook should that be allowed death threats abuse and why should tolerance be the greatest virtue or why should happiness be the greatest virtue? Where is that written? Who gets to decide that? Some people have tried to ground ethics in things like science, uh, or at least in their understanding of science. So the most famous bad example of that probably is the Nazis. The Nazis viewed the German race as a superior race, as a genetically superior race. They viewed other people as inferior. The Jews were inferior, homosexuals were inferior, disabled people were inferior. But it wasn't just the Nazis. Please don't think that before the Second World War there was just a pocket of people in Germany who held those kinds of views. Actually, there was a, the, the Nazis gained some of their inspiration from the eugenics movement of North America, of, of America. In America, there was a very popular idea that there were some people who were regressive. There were some people, some human beings who were not quite up to the mark and they ought not to be given any help, any kind of social aid or anything like that so that they could just die out. Indeed, some American states even enforced sterilisation of criminals and other people. In an an 8-to-1 majority decision by the US Supreme Court defending that practice of enforced sterilisation, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote this, It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility... Society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Just take a moment to appreciate what's being said and who it is being said by. That is the US Supreme Court of America. With only one, dissent, one person dissenting from that view, this is the court that is set aside to uphold justice. Justice. Or listen to what Helen Keller said about the same issue. Helen Keller, you may know, was both blind and deaf from birth, and she wrote this. It is the possibility of happiness, intelligence, and power that gives life its sanctity. And they are absent in the case of a poor, misshapen, paralysed, unthinking creature. For Helen Keller, allowing the death of what she called malformed idiot babies was simply a weeding of the human garden that shows a sincere love of true life. Well, it's horrifying, isn't it, really? But in some ways, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? You know, as sickening as the idea is, from a purely kind of secular point of view, a purely atheist point of view... If we're just the objects of chance and time fighting for the survival in a world of selfish genes, then it makes absolute sense for the good of society and for the good of the world to exterminate the sick and the disabled and even those who can't contribute much to society. From the point of view of that worldview, it makes perfect sense. Social Darwinism, as it's called, as horrific as it is is actually, in some ways, the most sensible and intellectually honest virtue for the secular atheist. More recently, the Australian philosopher, Peter Singer, has argued for the legitimacy of infanticide, among other things. Infanticide is a killing of babies. That is, parents, he says, should be given some time after their child is born to decide whether or not they want them to, to survive... If they're too disabled, the parents should be allowed to have them killed. Disabled children, in Singer's view, threaten the happiness of their parents. And so parents should be able to decide if they want to dispose of their children before it makes their life too unpleasant. After all, people do that for babies in the womb. Why shouldn't that be allowed for a period of time after their birth? Maybe, Singer says, even up to two years. Now, please understand that Peter Singer is not a fringe player in the world of the intellectual elites. Peter Singer is, the New York magazine described him as the most influential philosopher alive. So the question is, how do we decide what is virtuous and good? Do we let the majority decide? Well, the majority in Nazi Germany decided that it was right to exterminate those that they thought were inferior. The majority of the Supreme Court in America voted for the enforced sterilisation of criminals and others that they thought were inadequate. How do we decide? How do we decide what is virtuous and what isn't? The Greek mathematician and philosopher Archimedes once famously said, apart from discovering things Uh, about weight he once said this famous quote he said give me a fixed point and i'll move the earth give me a fixed point and i'll move the earth that is his point is where do we find a fixed point by which we can move and measure everything else how do we find find out what is virtue so that's the question, what is virtuous and what isn't? It seems like a great idea to live a virtuous life, but how do we decide what that is? Well, the Bible's answer is that a virtuous life, the, the, answer to the, the decision of what virtue is, comes from beyond all of us, it comes from God. And that is, in many ways, what that passage that we read before is all about. To try and understand that passage, I want to give you an illustration. Imagine that you, through a party... Uh, and you invited a whole lot of people over to your house. Now, if you throw a party, generally speaking, if it's your party, you get to decide what goes on. You know, you get to decide what, what happens. Now, you could do that very selfishly, and you could throw a party, which is just all your favourite things and the things that uh, you know that nobody else will enjoy. But generally speaking, if anyone has a, an ounce of kind of uh, respect for others, when they throw a party, they'll throw a party that they want other people to enjoy, so you, you come up with these plans for throwing this party for things that people will love and enjoy and you invite them all over and uh, and you can't wait for this party to begin. Now imagine that your guests come and the mo- from the moment that they set foot in the door, they completely ignore you. You say hi to them, you open the door, you, you invite them in and they just... Pretend that you don't exist. They just kind of shut their eyes and cover their ears and you you try and have a conversation with them and they just walk around not listening, not looking. Uh, They eat the food that you've prepared for them. You've spent hours preparing this food for them and they love it and they enjoy it, but they refuse to acknowledge that you're even there. You might overhear one of the conversations In one of the little huddles that's taking place, people saying, wow, this is great food, isn't this This some of the best food that I've ever had? Where do you think it comes from? I heard that Bob made it. Oh, Bob, I don't even think that Bob exists. I think Bob is just a figment of your imagination. The food just appeared where it was. And because they pretend that you don't exist, they start to not only eat your food and ignore you, but they start to reimagine what the party could be like. They come up with their own ideas of what would be great things to do at your party. And so they see the TV and they think, well, that would make a good drinks tray, wouldn't it? I might use the television as a drinks tray. It's got a nice big surface area, can carry lots of drinks at once. They use your lounge as a trampoline. They think, well, that looks pretty bouncy. I might jump up and down on that. They think, it'd be nice to have a bonfire in that office over there, wouldn't it? Maybe we could use the dining table and we'll cut the dining table up, we'll burn it and we'll use it as a bonfire in the office. What do you think you would do if your party ended up like that? Well, you'd probably be quite upset, I imagine, in the first place. That's probably an understatement. You'd probably also think very seriously about calling the police, wouldn't you? They've set fire to your office, your dining table. What do you want? Do you want them out of your house? You wouldn't just say, oh, well, they're destroying my house. I'm sure they don't mean anything by it. But imagine if on that first night you didn't call the police, but you waited till they'd all gone... And you spent the night tidying up. And you thought to yourself, well, maybe I'll invite them around again tomorrow. Maybe I'll give them another chance. And then they come back the next night and they do the same thing all over again. And you think, oh, oh, I'll give it another go. And they come back day after day and year after year and nothing ever seems to change. You still don't exist they still destroy your house, they still take all the good gifts without acknowledging what you've done for them. Now maybe you begin to imagine, just in a little way, what it is that we've done as human beings with God. You see, that's exactly what God says has happened in that chapter of the Bible that we read before. Work through that chapter with me it says at the beginning of that passage in verse 18 the wrath of god is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness godlessness and wickedness of people why is god's wrath coming against the world it's not because god is uh, by nature vindictive god is by nature compassionate why is his wrath coming against the world because people suppress the truth by their wickedness what do they suppress the truth about god verse 20 For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. He says, but you can see that God is there. It doesn't doesn't take a rocket scientist to work that out. We can see that the world is wonderfully made, beautiful, exquisite, glorious. That it's rational, That it's not a nonsensical world, the kind of world that you might expect if it was made from chance. It's a world of order and design, where things fit together and work together. But like people, this passage says, like the people at that party, we close our eyes and we cover our ears and we say, no, it it doesn't work like that. Because we deny God, it says... For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. At the heart of our failure, at the heart of our failure of virtue is the fact that we don't acknowledge God. So you might think to yourself, well, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person, I live, uh, you know, I haven't stolen anything from anyone except the tax department or something like that, you know, I haven't Uh, I haven't murdered anyone, I try to be nice to people, I don't always succeed, uh, but I try to be nice. But to define virtue that way completely misses the point. Imagine the people at the party, so nice to each other, (laughs) but so rude to the host. Is that virtuous? This universe is God's world, we're God's guests. In fact, we're not just God's guests, we actually derive our whole life from him. He made us, he sustains us every moment of the day. So even if we lived life, you know, perfectly taking care of the furniture of God's world, even if we could do that perfectly, if we ignore God, that that isn't virtue, You see, at the heart of virtue is not a list of rules that need to be kept, but it's a person to be loved. A God who made us, who's poured himself out for us, who sustains us. We can't be virtuous if we love everyone else, even if we could do that. We can't be virtuous if we love everyone else except God. But this passage also says that our rejection of God kind of, as the heart of virtue has implications in other ways as well. It has, if you like, this kind of cascading effect, this domino effect. It's like pulling uh, you know, one of the pieces out of it. You know, in the game Jenga, you pull out one of the pieces at the bottom of the tower and the whole tower just collapse, collapses. Sort of taking God out of virtue is kind of the same thing. Because we fail to acknowledge God, as a consequence of that, we, we actually begin to turn God's world upside down. God has built things for one purpose and then we take those things and we use them for another purpose. Like with the television, using it as a drinks tray or the dining table, using it as a start, you know, the start for a bonfire. We do the same thing with God's world. That's what we've done with the environment. God gave us a world to cultivate and to protect to, to make beautiful, and we've, we've ruined it, we've destroyed it, uh, whether that's through destroying the ozone layer, or, or greenhouse gas emissions, or, or failing to manage our water supplies properly, uh, failing to manage uh, the, the, the forests for bushfire dangers and other things. We've destroyed God's world, we've turned it upside down. But the key example that this passage gives is not the environment, but homosexuality. And that's not because in the Bible, homosexuality is kind of worse than any other way of turning God's world upside down. It's the key example, I think, because it's such a clear way of turning God's world upside down. God made men and women to complement each other, not just relationally but also physically that the physical anatomy of men and women makes it clear what god's pattern for the world is it's obvious but as human beings and as a society we've turned that upside down we said look you can have sex with whoever you want whenever you want as long as it's consensual An even more extreme form of that, of course, is the transgender movement. It breaks my heart that young and old people are being encouraged to surgically alter their bodies, cut cut them up, so that they can find true satisfaction. God made those bodies beautiful, He made them for a purpose. And we turn his world upside down. And notice too that this passage mentions a further outcome. It's not just that some people do these things. But as a society, we, we change and we move so that we not only allow people to do them, but, but support them and encourage them. Yes, do that. Yes, that's the best way to live. Yes, That's how the world was made. No! You see, that's how far away from the virtue of God we've slipped. Not only do we turn God's world upside down, but we encourage and approve people for doing it. But it's not just that. It's not just one or two people with one or two issues. All of us have turned God's world upside down. God made us for love, but we hate. God made us for generosity, but we're greedy. God made us to respect and obey our parents, but we disrespect and obey our parents. God made us for mercy, but we're brutal. God made us to look after his world, but we've raped and pillaged it and brought it to within a hair's breadth of its own destruction. Because we don't love God, we turn his world upside down and we destroy it. And it's not just the people out there It's not just the people who don't turn up at church. It's us here too. It's religious people. In the very first words at the beginning of the next chapter, we didn't read them, but just the next words, it says this, you therefore, you, who's you? You, the religious people. You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. No one is virtuous. Virtue is beyond all of us. We're to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, but we don't live like that. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves, but we don't do that. And so what we need is not to pick ourselves up and try a bit harder because we can't get there. We sang that song before, didn't we? Not the labours of my hands can fulfil your law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow all for sin. It could not atone. It couldn't make up for what we've done. You must save and you alone What we need is not to try harder. What we need is God's grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. The only way to discover virtue is through the death of Jesus' son in our place and for God to begin to change us through his resurrection from the dead to be like his son Jesus. We can't be virtuous without God. We can't be virtuous without God's grace and mercy in Jesus. How do we receive that? How do you receive that? The first thing that we do is acknowledge that God is right, that is, acknowledge that we're not virtuous people, that we don't love God, that we don't love each other, that we've turned his world upside down. The first thing we do is acknowledge that. And the second thing we do is we ask God to forgive us through Jesus. We ask God to bury in the grave with Jesus all the things that we've done against him. And we ask him to fill us with the new life that comes through Jesus to love and to serve God. Well, if you haven't done that, uh, then I'm going to pray now and you might like to pray along uh, with me in your own heart and mind. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge every single one of us that we are not virtuous people. Lord, we see the the goodness of virtue we see the goodness of living for others loving others but lord so often we fail to do that so often too we get confused about what is good and what isn't we make our own decisions about that we turn your world upside down and we say that good is evil and evil is good Lord, we have not only done that, we've also pushed you out of the picture. And every day, we, again, we do that. We might be kind to those around us, Lord, but we pretend that you don't exist and go about things our own way. We receive your good gifts and don't acknowledge you. Neither glorify you nor give thanks to you. Lord, we want to acknowledge that. Uh, Some of us want to acknowledge that. We've acknowledged it many times before. Some of us perhaps want to acknowledge that for the first time. Lord, please forgive us through Jesus, uh, through his death on the cross in our place. uh, Please restore us to yourself. Forgive us for what we've done as individuals and what we've done as a society and as a a people. But Lord, forgive us so that we might know your grace, that we might be raised up with Jesus by the power of your Holy Spirit and that we might live a new life uh, for your good and for your glory. Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.